Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Near where Faith grew up in uh, Kanoya in Japan, there is a leper colony. And I understand the term is not exactly correct, but that's what it was referred to. And her father ministered there for 50 years. Went there right after the war and went there his, until he could go no more. And the people in the colony were forbidden for years to go out in the society. And so they formed their own church. And a high percentage were Christians because their own families erased them from the family registry. And the registry, historically in Japan, the family registry may have been kept with either the Buddhist or the Shinto shrine, but it was a government system. But of course the idea is, oh, they were banished. Their family just forgot about them. So for 50 years, until he couldn't do it anymore, he took them communion, he preached, he baptized, he ministered to these folks. But none of these people appear as part of any denomination. And so I guess if you have to be Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or any denomination to be a part of the authentic body of Jesus, these people are out of luck. If you have to be Methodist or Baptist or Anglican to be saved, I guess the lepers of Kagoshima, they're not saved. I don't imagine there's any history anywhere that talks about the lepers in a little town in Kanoya in the other southern tip of Japan. It's too unimportant, in quotes, of course. They have no important people there. No popes, no bishops. And I don't suppose any have ever even noticed them or even know about them. They live and they die in near total obscurity unrecognized and unclaimed even by their own families. Now the Christianity that I believe in is one where I presume the lepers of Kagoshima are authentic Christians. Unrecognized, uncounted, rejected as they are. I presume that they're not counted out or even counted second as regards the kingdom of God. Now I'm not sure that they've worked out their theology. I don't know if they've worked out the processions of the Trinity, the exact nature of the Incarnation. Nonetheless, I want to be a part of a church where the lepers of Kagoshima are not counted in as an exception, a mistake, a second-class group of people. I don't know if any group of Christians would just say blatantly, well, I guess they're all going to hell. But by presuming that the name of a particular church, their church, their bishops, their leadership, is the most authentic, I'm afraid that they can only include the lepers of Kagoshima as some sort of exception. In the Christian church, we believe we're just Christians. We don't put any name on. If there's a street, we might put that on. Because that was the designation, you know, given at Antioch in Acts 11.26. They called them Christians. It was probably, maybe it was a derogatory term. We really don't know where it came from. 
But the man-made designations like Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Methodist, Baptist, in fact, 45,000 different denominations worldwide. I assume that those things are not definitive. Those man-made organizations are not definitive of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, it's not up to us. The Lord's Supper, you know, this is the thing we say. We neither invite anybody nor do we debar anybody because we're not hosting the supper. We're not guarding the doors of the church. Ours is actually, it's kind of a sloppy way to do things because it's not very clean. It's not very clear. There's no lines dividing inside and outside. There's no national headquarters. There's no patriarchs. There's no popes. There's no bishops. We do not believe in apostolic procession. Which brings me to Acts. Let's look at Acts 23 to 26. And of course, this is the apostles are meeting and they've lost Judas because he hanged himself. And they thought, well, Jesus trained up 12 apostles, so I guess we need to replace Judas. And so they pick two men and they're going to draw straws. Verse 23 of chapter 1. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. I don't know if this is supposed to be the way this takes place. They're actually kind of forcing God's hand here. They say, well, it's either this guy or this guy, God. So we'll choose lots. We'll roll the dice. But of course, later on in the book of Acts, God raises up Paul. And Paul will always claim to be an apostle equal with the other apostles. Well, then what about Matthias? Who's the 12th apostle? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? I don't know. Matthias never appears again. But maybe this is the way of the church. People organize, they choose, and God does his own organization and choosing. And sometimes the two may meet up and sometimes they may not. Sometimes it's not clear how what people do what they designate, who they name, how that fits into God's plan. I guess that's what we need to assume. It's a way of reading church history. In the endless disputes that mark the history of the church, I don't know how you judge the authentic Christians. And I don't think we have to. The apostles themselves, they never said, well, you're out and you're in. They tried to write letters. They tried to persuade people. My point is that they never had the kind of authority that the church is going to presume to have after Constantine. It was only when Constantine said, well, those Donatists, during the persecution, some people denied Christ. They became apostate. And the Donatists said, well, wait a minute. We don't think we should just let these people back in. And Constantine said, no, they come back in. 
And in fact, they closed the churches of the Donatists. They said, you're not Christians anymore. It was the divide of the sword. And the sword would become the deciding factor in the organization of the church. The human church, the man-made church. So much so, if you decided with the early Christians that you did not believe the sword, the civil authority, emperors or kings, should get to decide the winner in doctrinal disputes, historically, it's hard to trace the survival of the fullness of the gospel. I believe it did survive, and it does survive, but in particular periods of church history, to assume that it is fully traceable historically or institutionally, I think it's just a category mistake to think that way. You know, it's always the victors who write the history, and they're writing the history of the losers. But wait a minute. Aren't Christians always the losers? Aren't we the ones at the bottom? Aren't we the ones who take up the cross? Aren't we to be the ones who are among the outcasts? How do you write a history of the losers when it's always the winners who are writing the history? Now at the same time, to presume that Constantine or the Dark Ages has wiped out any authentic trace of the gospel, I think that's a misunderstanding. It's to presume that Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, with its institutions and formulations, that that's the sole purveyor of the gospel. And it's not. We know that God is working to raise up his own people and his own church and his own apostle, and we can't always trace that. Now, I don't mean to suggest here that the gospel is simply interior. I think it is that, but it's more than that. But I assume that the cross is, as Paul describes it, it in some way suspends what we think is important, what we think is significant. It suspends the law as the idea, the oppressive force. You know, this is Romans 7, 2. He says we've been released from the law. And the word he uses here is a kind of hard word to, to understand, katargeo is to render inactive, to condemn to inactivity. It doesn't abolish the law, it doesn't end it. And the law, of course, is just everything. The law or the symbolic order is that place where people thought significance resided. It's where things endure, where people make their mark, where institutions reign. It's where there is an, a hierarchy. The hierarchy of the law determined the priesthood. But this is precisely what the gospel is not. The symbolic order or the law is not simply those commands in the Old Testament. It's inclusive of the institutions of Israel. All that Israel is, is the law. And Paul will include the institution of marriage, ethnicity, social class. All of these things are included. Paul will equate even the human struggle on both the cosmic and the individual level as a struggle with this law. Not that the law is the problem, but to mistake what is significant. That's the problem. Given this truth, the history of the church, I think we have to read it again, and it has to be written again, 
from beneath this suspension, beneath this given order of reality, beneath what we think is significant, I believe is what God is doing and that that's the true significance. In Israel, I mean literally in the case of lepers, you're counted out. You couldn't be a Gentile. You couldn't be handicapped. And I believe that's why in Luke 13, 7, you remember when Jesus curses the fig tree? Well, this, the fig tree represented Israel. He said, this tree's bearing no fruit. And it should be cut down. It should be rendered inactive. He uses the same word, katargeo. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. He talks about in 13.11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with, katargeo, with childish things. And so he depicts the suspension of the law as on the order of like you're in a marriage and your spouse dies. Or on the order of childhood and now you're mature. It may still be there. Your childhood is still there in the past. You were still married. But it no longer constrains you. It's no longer determinative. And this, you know, this limitation that constrained us, inclusive of rules, it certainly included the Ten Commandments, but it pertains to the whole way of structuring society. That's lifted up. That no longer constrains you. And Paul uses an expression in 1 Corinthians 7, same idea in suggesting that Christian identity should no longer be tied. You know, if you're married, well, that's okay. If you're not married, that's okay. If you're a slave or free, he says that's okay. But don't let that define you. He says, treat these things as if not. They're realities, but they are not realities that define you. He says, I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened. Wives should be as though they had no husbands. I don't think he's saying, you know, abandon your marriage or abandon your station. But he says, those who buy act as if you do not possess. Those who use the world as though you do not make full use of it. He's saying this world is passing away. This is not what identifies us. And so the law is this all-inclusive category for Paul. It's not the law that's the problem any more than it is marriage or singleness or slave or free that is the problem. It is the arche, the principalities and powers, the overarching principle that stands behind the law, that stands behind these symbolic structures in which we say, oh, here's the important stuff. Paul says you don't live under that constraint anymore. That for the Christians, these things are rendered powerless, Paul says, by the power of God. The power of God trumps what is, or what we think is really significant, and lifts up what is not. You know, Paul appears out of thin air as far as the apostles are concerned. They had Matthias, but God had other plans. He had another notion of significance. Now, ironically, Luther aggravates our whole problem here of the power behind the law because he's going to conflate this power with the law itself. And he's going to create a religion. He says, oh, let's just get rid of all the law. 
Let's get rid of the symbolic order. And of course you can't really do that because we live in the world. He's just going to say we have faith in faith or faith without works. There's no content to the faith. And the point is not in the New Testament to obliterate or destroy, but to not let these things bind us. We can get caught up in the significance of this world and miss what God is doing. Paul says it doesn't matter if you're a law keeper or a lawbreaker, circumcised or uncircumcised, married or single, Greek or Jew, male or female, Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, Protestant or Anabaptist. Now I've added a little bit. None of these categories bear the weight of prime identity. And when they are made to bear that weight, what happens? They deal out death. They become oppressive. In the same manner, Paul says, as those who crucified Jesus in 1 Corinthians 2.8. The Lutheran reaction to the Anabaptists. What did they do? They killed them. They slaughtered them. The Catholic reaction, what did they do? They slaughtered them. Everybody agreed on one thing. We kill Anabaptists. It makes the point that where the law becomes the thing, Lutheranism becomes the thing, Catholicism becomes the thing. You deal out death. You decide, and you decide by the sword. And so Pharisees, no matter if they're Lutheran, Baptist, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Anabaptist, or American. They always make the same mistake of identifying the sign, the law. They identify it with the thing itself. As if, oh, we have the significant thing here. And this proves deadly. And so we're to live a lifestyle that Paul characterizes as if not. We don't concern ourselves with dispensing the law determining this order. We just sidestep this in Christ. And this suspension of the law, the cessation of its continual condemnation, I believe it's just as broad as human society is. It's as broad as human institutions. And the New Testament exposes the pursuit of power as being possessed by power. If you want power, you're possessed. You're not possessing power. If you want wealth, you're poor. You have a poverty of spirit. It's idolatrous. If you want to control things, you want to be in control, guess what? You're out of control. Or as Paul will depict it, I want to do what I can't do and I can't do what I want to do. If you engage that struggle, guess what? That is your problem. That is your struggle. And so Jesus models a relinquishing of power from the law. Jesus can walk through barriers put up by the symbolic world. Literally walk through walls, but I think also barriers of importance. He permanently undoes what this world counts. It's the power of the sword that decides, oh, wait a minute, resurrection power trumps the power of the sword the power behind the law and so one can move through this matrix I don't know if you all saw the movie the matrix it actually turns out that the whole world is computer generated and all you need to do is learn the key and you can go in and gravity doesn't hold you 
Well, there's the sense that we can move in and out of the matrix of this world in that way. That it's suspended, as if not. And that's the imagery in several New Testament images. Peace, freedom, unity. They all are connected with breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall that would divide the world up is definitive of the law, every law, every symbolic order that enslaves and deals out death. The Hutterites, actually a group of Anabaptists, they came up with a term for this. This feeling of as if not, this feeling of we live in the world, but we're not of the world. They call it Galassenheit. And it has the meaning of having let go-ness. Just let go of it. It's like Paul's as if not. There's an abandonment of self-concern, self-affirmation, a relinquishing of the desire to be in charge, to get control, to get at the top, and to secure oneself through these principalities and powers. This arche is the natural human disposition. And I think Paul is saying that as Christian communities, we don't order ourselves that way. We don't have these, these archic principles. We are anarchic, meaning there are no principalities and powers in that sense by which we organize ourselves. And with this understanding in place, I think both that there is this symbolic order. We understand, okay, it's there. I understand it's there. But we don't live that way. But then the question is raised as to how to find the church and how to understand its history. You know, is the Constantinian shift and the empowerment of popes and bishops and councils, is that the authentic church or did we lose the church? Is the Protestant Reformation a recovery of the church? Or is that the wrong way of speaking? And so as I've talked about it, I think it's hard to trace the survival of the fullness of the gospel in particular periods of history. But I think it's a category mistake to imagine that it's traceable through normal historical and institutional channels. And so last week I talked about the Protestant Reformation. You know, it kind of normalized the Constantinian ethic the Constantinian relation of church and state, where the sword decides, the sword chooses who's in and who's out. It literally will be by the power of the sword that the church leaders, the popes, the bishops will be determined. And so quite literally the Constantinian sense of history is that God is at work in history and we can see that in Constantine. I'd say, whoops, you're looking the wrong way. But we understand that it's mainly those who are at the top who tell the story. As if a singular thing is happening. You know, it's always the enforcers of the symbolic order who determine what's significant. But what we need to think of is a story that could be told from the bottom. From within the place that the gospel suspends the law. I presume that tales of popes and councils, bishops and kings they would not figure into that history at all. And this, of course, is that's the Bible. That's the narrative that we have. It's a narrative of insignificance. The history of a people that have no consequence, culminating in a tale of a crucified carpenter's son that is meant to 
cause us to identify with the dispossessed, the outcast, just as Jesus did. And if we read reality and history from this biblical perspective, we understand that the rise and fall of earthly kings and presidents or popes or the people that we presume or are presumed to be important in which we're blinded to what is significant by those who would obscure what is significant. These are only blinders to the real story, which is the story of the cross. And maybe it's due to the pervasive Constantinianism that we're surrounded by that we have trouble in our own context. So if I would say to you today, you know, where are the lepers in the American experience? It's not Jew, Gentile, male, female, I think as so much as it's black-white, which grounds the symbolic order in the United States. I'm going to quote a couple of guys here. One is James Baldwin. James Baldwin is a black man. He became a preacher when he was young. But he says, I was able to see that the principles governing the rights and customs of the churches in which I grew up did not differ from the principles governing the rights and customs of other churches, white churches. The principles, he says, were blindness, loneliness, and terror. The first principle necessarily and actively cultivated in order to deny the other two. That is, we're blind and we don't see that we're living out of loneliness and fear. And so the dominance of the value system, he said, took hold. It emptied for him the content of the gospel. He said, I would love to believe that the principles were faith, hope, and charity, but this is clearly not so for most Christians, or what we call the Christian world. And so Baldwin describes in all truthfulness a Christianity that has operated with an unmitigated arrogance and cruelty, with the realm of power. And of course, when Christians try to be in power, that's exactly what happens. He describes this Constantinian form of a faith as more deeply concerned about the soul than it is about the body. To which fact the flesh and the corpses of countless infidels bear witness. Now Baldwin is under the crushing weight, I believe, of the symbolic order of the law. And he cannot escape it. But let me turn to another black preacher named James Cone. He describes the same stuff as Baldwin does. And he's also angry. He says, the more I read about and looked at what whites did to powerless blacks, the angrier I became. But he says, paradoxically, anger soon gave way to a profound feeling of liberation. Being able to write about lynching, he writes a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And what he notices is, well, where is Jesus to be found in Southern society? Well, if anywhere, it would be on the lynching tree. And that's what most resembles the cross. And being able to write about lynching, he says, liberated me from being confined by it. The cross helped me to deal with the brutal legacy of the lynching tree. And the lynching tree helped me to understand the tragic meaning of the cross. The countless acts of violence enacted against black people. It led Cone to this choice. He says, either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's experience 
or God is a God of racism. Where do we find God? We find him in the leper colony. We find him on the lynching tree. We find him at the bottom of society and we will not find him among the lynchers. We will not find him among those who are oppressing. We must accept, according to Cohn, that God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering and that he identifies with the oppressed and suffering. I believe what Cohn is describing the liberation he's describing is the liberation from the law that Paul is describing. The liberation from the symbolic order that would oppress us. The as if not is what I think he discovers. The Galassenheit. Peace can be realized in the face of death through the cross, through the work of the cross. And so in this understanding, the true history of Christianity, it's not going to be told or rendered visible by those in power. Augustine will talk about the invisibility of the church and that's not what I mean. I think we can see the church. It's there on the lynching tree. I think we can see the church. It's there among the lepers in Canoia. I think we can see the church. Augustine said, oh, it's just become invisible. I think there's an invisibility that is rendered by this symbolic order, a symbolic blindness in which the suffering are made invisible to those who are stepping on their necks. The cross, already it's a means of erasure, a means of rendering insignificant. So that if the history of those who take up the cross is to be written, it cannot be written by those who put people on crosses. Those who crucify cannot tell us about the crucified. Those who exercise power and violence, whether that of the state or the church, they may have the loudest voices, but they cannot speak for those who witness to an order suspended by the cross. Now, I don't think you can write this history. I don't think it's been written, and perhaps it can never be written. But it is a perspective that must presume the blindness of church history revolving around power. And it must presently be a recognition of a church experience that presumes the powerful do not determine significance. And I believe, though, that we can recognize that. We can realize that. We can identify with the lynched, with the leper, with the crucified. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.